Greetings and welcome to the Animal Wellness Podcast, the official podcast of Animal Wellness Action. Hi, I'm your host, Joseph Grove. On this show, we talk about animals from the perspective of people who care about them and have the ability to improve their lives by influencing culture and supporting laws and regulations accordingly. To stay up to date with all of our news and information, subscribe to this podcast, receive our free newsletters and more, please visit animalwellnessaction.org. We talk a lot about tough issues on this podcast, so it's nice when we have an opportunity to celebrate a win, and that's what we're doing today. Last week, the Supreme Court handed down a decision in the case of uh, National Pork Producers Council v. Ross that said there was no constitutional bar to states setting up laws such as California's Prop 12. That ballot initiative requires that any company wanting to sell certain animal products in the state must meet certain standards for the confinement of those animals before they are slaughtered for human consumption. Well, as one might guess, uh, the pork companies and others objected to the improved standards for the animals, resented the fact that they wouldn't be able to sell those animals in the state of California, and began hiring lawyers. A whole legal brouhaha resulted. Fortunately, after years of battles in the lower courts, the nation's highest bench swatted down the pork producers' challenge. It was a close decision, five to four, as so many of them are these days, and new challenges are sure to surface in Congress. Big pork won't take the defeat lightly. Here to tell us about Prop 12 and other measures are Wayne Paselli and Kate Schultz-Barton. Wayne is the president of Animal Wellness Action, and Kate is the organization's senior attorney. Kate, appreciate it. I know you played a large role in preparing the briefs that we sent to the Supreme Court on the decision. I want to get to you in a moment. But first, I'd like to ask Wayne, who's been involved with with tons of ballot initiatives over the years and has certainly been a factor in the advocacy of Prop 12, to give us a history of these ballot measures, what they tried to do for animals, and how we ended up in court in the first place. So, Wayne, I know it's been a very busy day for you. Glad you were able to make time for the show. Uh, What's the lay of the land for pigs? Sure, Joseph. Well, farm animals are part of the matrix of concerns for the animal protection movement, but for so many years, there were almost no legal protections for them. And myself and a few others really concentrated on the issue of extreme confinement when we really began to think about putting farm animal policies onto the books. But the states had ag committees that were dominated by legislators from the most rural districts and very aligned with the agribusiness concerns, the pork industry, the cattlemen, and others. So uh, I helped to launch in 2001 for a 2022 ballot with my friend Gene Bauer, uh, who was the founder of Farm Sanctuary, the first ballot measure uh, that ultimately succeeded to ban gestation crates. It was in Florida. We won by double digits. Four years later, uh, I, with a whole bunch of colleagues, mainly Paul Shapiro, who was a colleague then, and Josh Balk, uh, we initiated a measure in Arizona called Prop 204 that banned the gestation crates and also added veal calves into the mix to stop their extreme confinement. Two years later, We went to California and did Prop 2 and added laying hens and the confinement of laying hens in battery cages to those set of prohibited extreme practices for farm animal confinement. From there, after that run, 60 companies, biggest names in food, McDonald's, Burger King, Cracker Barrel, 
Safeway, Costco, Kroger, they all adopted some form of policy against gestation crates, and many of them also uh, went to the point of saying they were only going to buy cage-free eggs. So they were kind of shedding uh, from their supply chains producers who were relying on battery cage confinement. That was good, and that was exciting. We were making real progress. Uh, but some of the companies you know, really had farther out um, uh, deadlines for their implementation of their new purchasing practices. And we were also concerned about some of the companies reneging. So we went to Massachusetts in 2016. And Massachusetts had a ballot measure that we launched called Question 3. So it stopped the extreme confinement for in-state production. But then it also restricted the sale of veal, eggs, and pork that come from these extreme confinement operations, no matter where the farms are. So if you wanna sell pork in Massachusetts under the terms of question three, you'd have to get it from an in-state or out-of-state producer who was conforming to these space allotments that the animals should have had the ability to stand up, lie down, turn around and freely extend their limbs. Massachusetts voters then passed that by an extraordinary vote, 78 to 22, just really underscoring the idea that the public was totally with us. You just don't get ballot measures that lopsided. From there, we went to, to California to add those sales standards as well. The pork industry then was very unhappy. The egg industry was recognizing the writing on the wall, seeing that the drift was toward anti-confinement. But the pig industry began to sue, and there have been a whole series of legal theories that that the pork industry and other agribusiness players advanced that played out. And that's really where I think Kate uh, has a real grasp on what those cases were. So Kate, uh, tell us about how those legal challenges came to court. What were the arguments being made? So the legal challenge that ultimately made its way to the Supreme Court, our highest court of this nation, uh, was based on the theory that California's Proposition 12 violated a legal doctrine that we call the Dormant Commerce Clause. The Dormant Commerce Clause, in easiest possible terms, stands for the idea that one state cannot enact a law that is protectionist in a way that disadvantages other states. The pork industry here was arguing that California's law that set sales standards, as opposed to merely requiring that all pigs within the state of California not be subject to such extreme confinement, violated the Dormant Commerce Clause because it required pork producers outside of the state of California to adopt certain practices in order to sell within the state. So while in the past, many states, I think right now there's 10 and counting, um, have enacted standards for the confinement or for the non-confinement of breeding sows within the state, California and Massachusetts, as Wayne mentioned, were the first states to set standards for how the pigs that ultimately become the pork that we buy in stores, uh, how their mothers were in fact raised. And that is the uh, issue that the pork industry had there. So let me ask you this, and, and I think this came up in one of our earlier shows because you've talked about the dormant clause before. You gave a great answer. Uh, I know, for example, there was a huge challenge when California enacted uh, emission standards. And if you wanted to sell cars into California, you, you had to meet certain requirements. How is this case different from that? It seems like it'd be a no-brainer. If you have to remanufacture a car to sell in California, why not treat a pig more humanely? That is an excellent question. Um, 
the main difference in per, per California's performance standards is that California has explicit permission from the federal government to have these different performance standards, while the federal government is totally silent on pig confinement or breeding sow confinement and pig confinement overall. So, but you, that brings up an interesting point because had the Supreme Court's decision been adverse to California in the case uh, National Pork Producers versus Ross, that could have had a cascading effect across the nation in terms of environmental laws, state level environmental laws, state level consumer safety laws, state level food safety laws, a whole host of these state level laws that protect us in our everyday lives. What is really noteworthy about this debate over gestation crates, as Kate insinuated or indicated, there are no federal laws to protect farm animals. So the pork industry has fought efforts, as have other agribusiness groups, to allow the imposition of any animal welfare standards at the federal level. The only thing that happens is there's a Humane Slaughter Act. There's a very archaic 24-hour law when it comes to transportation you've got to offload animals uh, from from uh, trains or trucks every 24 hours that is kind of an unworkable law but when it comes to production which is the bulk of the animals lives there are no legal standards so really what happened as a consequence of that obstructionism by the pork industry and others is that we went to the states and we went to the corporations to seek reform and the ballot initiative is a constitutional process in about half the states. And we use that process to have the public render a verdict on these issues. Is it okay to immobilize animals for years on end uh, so they can't even turn around or extend their limbs or stretch their wings? And the public in case after case said, no, that is not acceptable. Even if we have to pay a little bit more, we're willing to do so because this is an outrageous subversion of our basic animal wellness standards in our society. Animals built to move should be allowed to move. So essentially what the pork industry was doing in attacking these state laws is they were attacking all farm animal welfare standards. They don't want anything happening on the federal level for animals. They don't want anything happening at the state level. They don't want anything happening at the local level. They want to be in charge. They want to decide if it's okay to keep animals immobilized. And really our challenge is broad, right? I mean, we think that the federal government should adopt animal welfare standards. So should the states. And in certain cases, so should local governments where, where appropriate uh, in terms of you know, where the animals are placed. So it is, a, uh, it is a remarkable thing that the industries fight the most basic standards. We're just talking about giving animals a little bit of space this is not some animal rights manifesto with all sorts of different metrics about socializing animals or, you know, how they're treated in so many ways, how they're transported. This is just give them enough space to move around. Not very far reaching. Yeah. Well, let me play devil's advocate for a moment, right? I'm a business and California, great. It has its own laws. But then what if, you know, Colorado has its own laws and New Mexico and Washington, and then suddenly I'm a small business, let's say, and I'm trying to market to all 50 states. Isn't there an argument to be made that, by golly, you know, do we really want to have a system where every state is almost like it's its own country? 
that is one of the questions that the court grappled with here. Um, the Dormant Commerce Clause is something that many lawyers probably never have to encounter in their life, and they should thank the stars that they don't. But the Supreme Court here um, in oral arguments was asking the lawyers presenting both sides or all sides, um, you know, what what happens if every state has all of these different laws, not only about necessarily pink confinement, but about a whole host of other issues? How can any uh, company nowadays sell nationally? And ultimately, the answer that they decided in their decision was that there may be certain scenarios where national standards have to be enforced. For example, uh, national standards in terms of roadways or railways. You can't have uh, a train stop at the tracks going from Nevada into Arizona because the requirements for that train changes. However, as Justice Scorches said, pigs are not trains and a company can choose to sell in California or choose not to, uh, just as a company can choose to sell in Iowa or choose not to. Um, and that is the great thing about our country is that we have the ability, the states have the right to come up with the laws that their citizens believe that they ought to pass. And that, as Gorchus also said, the Supreme Court of this country, the highest court, is not in the position, these uh, you know, single-digit number of justices, to tell Californian voters or any other state voters what should or should not be their laws, as long as they don't violate the Constitution in some larger sense. Yeah, and let me just let me just say, Joseph, this is a very important question that you've raised, and it's certainly you articulated some of the argument from the Pork Producers Council in, in making this 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 argument. California is really just about 12 or 13% of the US market. Now the pig industry has global markets. So when you think about the total product of the pork industry, California is probably less than 10% uh, of the entire market for the, the, the pigs raised for, for consumption. So Massachusetts is you know, less than one fifth the size of California. So let's say it's 12 or 15% just to use broad numbers between the two states. We already know that Tyson Food, Hormel, a bunch of others, uh, the Claire, Claire, Claremont Group, they have all said that they have sufficient capacity to meet California's demands right now for pork. This became you know, kind of a, a doomsday scenario for the pork industry that you're gonna have 50 state rules. Well, that's never going to happen. Most states don't have the ballot initiative process. Most states are not going to adopt measures on pig protection because the legislatures are so beholden to the pork industry and other agribusiness interests. But the response, even if there was, even if there were some differential standards, the response is let's have a national standard that bans just Asian grains rather than we're just going to eliminate any farm animal welfare concerns. We've got a, a, a bill right now called the Pigs Act, Pigs in Gestation Stalls Act. That would set a national standard. It would level the playing field for everybody. There would be certainty for producers in knowing what housing systems they would use to supply the, uh, the American public. So that solution is right there, but they don't want it because they're not really concerned about uniformity. They are not concerned about certainty. They're concerned about doing things the way they want to animals. They think it's just fine to put a 450 pound sow 
in a two foot by seven foot crate for three years so she cannot even turn around. That is what the American public objects to. People don't want to support gestation crates. The pork industry can talk all day about all these far-fetched scenarios. The bottom line is they're trying to force feed you, the American public, pork that comes from animals who are mistreated as routine animal husbandry practice. And the amount of space called for by California to be sold into is is not that much larger, right? Uh, give give our listeners a sense of how much more space we're talking about. It's not it's not like they're each getting their own bedroom. No, we're talking about 24 square feet for the sows, who are really just 5 million of the 130 million animals used annually in American uh, pig production. The two foot by seven foot crate is 14 square feet. So you're going from 14 to 24 square feet for just fewer than 5% of the animals in your production systems. The pigs raised for meat are already in group housing systems. They already have enough space to turn around. You're talking about a policy that affects approximately three to 4% of the animals. And already you've seen Smithfield and a whole bunch of other companies move away from gestation crates. So the whole thing was just some overwrought, dramatized issue by the pork industry to scare the public. They used these same tactics on the ballot and tried to frighten people to vote against the measures because you're going to deal with food prices that are soaring. You're going to drive farmers out of business. And the public saw through all of that smoke and mirrors campaigning, and they passed every one of these ballot measures by double digits. And now the pork industry and its allies have lost 11 of 11 cases challenging those ballot measures, 11 of 11. And then you think of 60 food companies, the biggest names in American food retail, all having policies against gestation crates now. It's those people who are extreme. They're way out of the, out of the mainstream. They haven't won in any venue. And their new effort to try to have the federal government not have any farm animal welfare standards, but then to also wipe out state standards, that has been kicking around Congress for about nine years, and they've never passed that measure either. Mm-hmm. Wayne, um, this this Prop 12, it applies to other animals beyond pigs, correct? It also applies to chickens? It applies to laying hens, so for egg production, and it also applies to veal calves. Now, in 2017, because of pressure that we brought previously, specifically that Arizona ballot measure that I mentioned in 2006 that banned veal crates, right after that, the veal industry said, okay, we're going to move away from crates. So the veal industry voluntarily moved from these extreme confinement crates. In terms of the egg industry, uh, about 30% of the egg industry has already converted to cage-free production, and that percentage is creeping up each year, especially now as these state policies like California and Massachusetts go into effect, but also big retailers like Costco and McDonald's and others start to have their supply chains exclusively drawing from the cage-free production systems. So the egg industry, a number of their associations were on our side in NPPC versus Ross. The California Association of Egg Farmers, a number of other Western state producers favor this because they've already made investments in these new systems of more extensive housing for the laying hens. And they didn't want those, those undercut by having you know, the worst, most extreme confinement systems operating in Iowa or Minnesota or wherever they may be operating. 
and undercutting their important investments where, yes, you're giving the animals a little more treatment. Yes, you're using a little more space, but that's what people expect. This food production should not be a moral race to the bottom when it comes to the treatment of animals. The animals are at the center of the enterprise. They're the ones that enable all of this to occur. And the least that these folks could do is actually abide by a standard of animal husbandry. But they just have this narrow-minded production mentality that if the animal is alive and reproducing, that is sufficient for animal welfare. Well, that is a discredited animal welfare science notion. And I hope that the successive defeats that they have sustained at the ballot box in the corporate policymaking realm and now in the courts are going to convince someone in the industry that maybe we just need to give the animals a little damp space. But so far, we haven't seen that view prevail. Yeah. Wayne, you mentioned a few minutes ago corporate commitments to selling products across the board from more humanely raised animals. Uh, what's the the status of a lot of those commitments? Are you finding that corporations are following through with their pledges? Who's monitoring that? Well, there is a a, a tangle of news and information because some of the, the companies came on in terms of their commitments at different times, and then a number of them really had 10-year phase-out periods. So McDonald's essentially said that for, for gestation crates and pork, they made the announcement or it made the announcement in 2012 and it was going to be complete with its transition by 2022. McDonald's doesn't seem to be quite there yet. And this lawsuit or the series of legal actions have disrupted some of that. So some of the companies are pushing things a little farther uh, and others are just, you know, they're some are reneging at this point. So it's our job to hold these companies accountable to their public pledges on this issue. Now, we're not so naive to think that the industry can just change its housing systems. There are important and significant capital investments that need to be made to have housing for laying hens at the scale that our nation operates at, the same with, with gestation crate production. That's why we accepted a number of years ago this phase-in for 10 years. And the ballot measures like question three in Massachusetts had a six-year phase-in. The Prop 2 excuse me, the Prop 12 ballot measure had essentially a five-year phase in. That was preceded 10 years earlier by Prop 2, which stopped inhumane confinement within the state of California, and that had six years. So this debate has been going on really actively throughout the first two decades of this 21st century. And the farmers, and there are lots of them who have made investments in better housing systems, they're the ones who are the good business people thinking ahead and understanding that their customers' values matter. What you get from the kind of the, the, the most obstinate forces in the pork industry and in some other sectors is this view that, by God, no one's going to tell us what, what we're going to do. We're going to do what we want to do. We've been doing this a long way. You don't know what you're talking about. That's ultimately their mentality and their thinking. And somehow they never got the business lesson that the customer is always right. How many different indicators do we have to have? Polls in 37 pig producing states showing widespread opposition to gestation crates, double digit victories on every ballot measure in the 21st century on farm animal welfare, 60 major corporations, including Oklahoma's Sonic, Arkansas's Walmart, 
Tennessee's Cracker Barrel. These are not liberal bastions that these companies are situated in. These are the biggest names in food retail, in restaurant, food service, supermarkets. How can they not understand the basic notion that the public and corporations that serve the public want the animals to be treated decently if they're raised for food? It's that simple, but they don't get it. And now they've got a bunch of their allies on Capitol Hill harumphing about, oh my God, we're going to wipe out the state laws. We don't think that that it's, you know, it's the appropriate role of the states to set these sorts of rules. Well, why don't you think about setting up some federal rules for farm animal welfare? And then everyone will be happy, especially, you know, those, those people who are, you know, now wondering, well, what, where am I going to sell to? You, it solves everything when you have uniform standards in the United States. Thank you. As, as you know, I start off every morning with a flapjack and a senior coffee at McDonald's, Wayne. Can I at least feel good about, are they trying? Are they trying, Wayne? I mean, you, they've missed the 10-year. Can I have my flapjack and my senior coffee in peace? Well, the, you know, the last time I checked, I, I think it was about two-thirds. They were, they were close to two-thirds of, of the way there. Uh, in terms of egg purchasing, that two-thirds of the eggs are coming from cage-free operations. Now, uh, you know, we'll have to check, and I think now a lot of the spotlight should turn to these companies. Because really, you know, the Congress has been attacking the states, uh, which, you know, that's where a lot of the people live who, who are represented by lawmakers in Congress as well. But they haven't been attacking the corporations so much. And now it's time for us to say, okay, you're a public company. You made a pledge. How are you fulfilling your pledge? And that is something that we at the Center for Humane Economy, which focus on the intersection of animal welfare and business practices, that's something for us to follow up on in a meaningful way. Thanks for all that, Wayne. Uh, Kate, I haven't forgotten about you. What's your reaction to all of this? Thank you, Joseph. You know, I just wanted to take a second to explain to the listeners and go back to our dozens of pages of very boring legal decision, um, why in my mind, Justice Gorsuch's decision is actually a vindication of the Center for Humane Economy's approach, animal wellness actions approach, and Wayne's approach all of these decades. So the Supreme Court here actually didn't just decide for California. But in fact, not a single dissenting opinion would have in fact upheld Proposition 12. So really, uh, this decision was a total slaughter, pun intended, of the pork industry here. Justice Gorsuch's opinion was almost shockingly disparaging of the pork industry's argument. And he keeps going on and on about, you know, the pork industry cannot tell a state what to do. And we, as justices, cannot second guess what voters decide. To me, that means that the approach that Wayne has been having the, uh, you know, the past couple decades and that many other advocates have had of going to the states, going to the companies, going to the people, um, instead of just, you know, going to the high courts to say, oh, no, no, you know, stop them, stop them. Wayne's approach is the right one. We need to go to the states first. We need to go to the people, convince them, convince the voters. Then we need to fend off attacks in our courts. And finally, after a very long period of time, or maybe short period of time, fingers crossed, um, we will reach Congress, we will reach a federal standard that allows, you know, not just pigs, but many other animals, all animals, 
some modicum of dignity um, and safety and welfare. And that is, I think, the right approach as opposed to doing it, you know, in some other fashion. And I think it just really vindicates for me why you all should donate to Animal Wellness Action. <laughs> well, that's great, Kate. No, thank you. Absolutely. And and that leads me right into my next point is that, you know, you and, and your colleague, Scott Edwards, uh, another, uh, our, our general counsel, really, uh, are, are just awesome on this stuff. And I'm familiar with, from a, from a layman's perspective, of course, some of the amicus brief you submitted. And, and first of all, thank you for that. Uh, second, uh, when our listeners do support to animalwellnessaction.org or centerforahumaneeconomy.org, it helps us fund these legal uh, initiatives, these challenges and our, our responses to them. Um, but what, what was the essence of the briefs you and your colleagues submitted? And if I recall correctly, um, they even used a lot of, or some of your language, correct? You found yourself echoed in a little bit of the Supreme Court opinion. I won't say that they use our language exactly, but uh, many of the points we raised were uh, paraphrased or echoed by Justice Gorsuch. However, they weren't, of course, only our points, but some other briefs points. But I am proud to say that we really um, had a sort of prescient uh, vision into the future of what might convince these justices. Um, to refresh for the viewers or to inform the viewers, the decision was uh, five justices would uphold Proposition 12 and four would actually remand to the lower court for further development of the record. Basically, that's just legal speech for we want more factual information. We don't have enough facts here. We need some more. So again, none of the justices would have struck down Proposition 12. And our entire uh, strategy with this brief was to go after at least some of the conservative justices. We looked at uh, what they had written before about the Dormant Commerce Clause. And we really went in trying to emphasize that the pork industry here was trying to do something that had never before been done. They were trying to turbocharge the Dormant Commerce Clause in a way that would threaten not just, you know, California trying to be tree hugging and pig hugging, but would threaten, in fact, Kansas and Texas and Florida and Oklahoma and Maine and every other state when they want to enact state laws and when their citizenry want to allow, enact laws that protect themselves or that serve their own goals. Um, so in that way, we were really vindicated by Gorsuch's, Justice Gorsuch's decision that completely agreed with our perspective that the pork industry, you know, was going to turbocharge the Dormant Commerce Clause, that the pork industry was stretching the Constitution and case law massively here. And actually, the decision was really a, re a restraining, a holding back of the Dormant Commerce Clause. And I think that it is one of the most important, if not the most important, Dormant Commerce Clause decision so far of the 21st century. And it all but promises that companies in the future, big corporations in the future, will have a very difficult time striking down these animal welfare laws in the states as long as, and this is very important, as long as the state passes these laws very smartly and writes them smartly. You know, we've also had a very kind of nonpartisan approach to animal welfare. You know, my belief has always been that people of conscience, whether they're Democrats, independents, or Republicans, they should all care. And that's been my experience in the United States. People of every political persuasion now embrace the idea that cruelty to animals is wrong. 
the challenge often comes in application of that principle to institutionalized uses of animals, like mass use of animals in industrialized agriculture. But you can see from the votes that we had in the states, double digits, we won Democrats and Republicans and everybody in between. And I think it's really noteworthy that we won uh, in a in a time with a Supreme Court with a very strong conservative orientation. It's a supermajority of conservatives. It's a two to one uh, ratio. The nine justices, six are conservative Republicans. We got Neil Gorsuch, who's a, who's a strong, strong conservative. No one can say he's a rhino, as uh, the term is sometimes used, a Republican in name only. Clarence Thomas is consistently one of the most conservative justices in terms of his his voting patterns and voting behavior. And Amy Coney Barrett is a hero on the right. So this was really such an important case for the animal protection movement because we won in a conservative court. We showed again that animal protection does not line up left or right. It lines up on basic values. We still have some connective tissue in our society. There are still things that all of us in our society care about. And one of the things is that all animals deserve humane treatment, including animals raised for food. So I am really uh, proud of the fact that this court uh, for the United States made this ruling. Uh, I'm proud of the fact that you look at the record of ballot measure activity and prior judicial decisions. Now let's ask the Congress to make us proud. Make us proud, pass national farm animal welfare laws that do provide uniformity, that do provide certainty for farmers, but that uphold the notion that animals should, should, should be receiving humane treatment. This is ridiculous that we have a cage era in agriculture, that it's okay as a routine husbandry practice to immobilize animals. That is wrong. You can say all the, you know, you can proffer all sorts of different legal theories to try to explain it or excuse it, but it's wrong at some level. And the law is ultimately about our values and the values are shining through that the American public wants these animals treated more decently, period. Um, and, and I know it's a, it's, it's a busy day for you, Wayne, and we're about out of time. Let me turn to Kate for final thoughts. Well, Joseph, my fine, I have a couple final thoughts. One is, again, to echo Wayne, you know, I wrote in my notes on this decision that this decision, in my mind, validated why our approach, and by our, I mean Animal Wellness Action and the Center for Humane Economy, why our approach is so effective. And my two notes on that were that one, um, working both sides of the aisle, how important that is. Look, both liberals and conservatives alike were actually on each side in dissenting and affirming. And also, too, uh, the approach that, you know, we have to not just focus solely on convincing everyone to, you know, uh, vote a certain way or think a certain way, but we have to be global about it. We have to remind people why, uh, you know, uh, confinement of pigs is also really harmful for us as well. We have to remind people why it's a health and safety issue, which is also something that the Center for Humane Economy and Animal Wellness Action does time and time again. And to me, I was just so incredibly pleased with the decision because it not only reaffirmed and 
affirmed California's um, groundbreaking law and set the stage for more laws throughout the country. But it really reaffirmed to me why uh, the approach we have developed here is so effective and such a power horse, um, pun intended. Well, you're, that's two puns. It's only one pun per show, Kate. Please remember that. It's two puns. All right. Well said, Kate. No, thank you. And I really do appreciate your, your passion. Uh, thank you for being on the show. Congratulations on, on your recent marriage. Uh, all the best to you and uh, your, your husband. Uh, Wayne, thank you again for being on the show. And foremost, uh, we want to thank our listeners and our donors. And many of you I know are one and the same. Uh, this work takes resources we have an incredibly generous donor base. Every dollar is needed and more because, as was intimated in some of what Wayne said, battles will come. I know that um, uh, legislators are already contemplating a legislative workaround for the Supreme Court decision to, to get past that. So we've won a huge battle. But as is so often the case, and maybe always the case with animals, the war never seems to be completely won. So please consider uh, considering uh, Animal Wellness Action and the Center for your, your donations. And uh, please do go to animalwellnessaction.org, centerforahumaneeconomy.org. You can read all about uh, our work here, uh, our work on the new Bear Protection Act, uh, all sorts of things going on. We are involved in a lot of issues. So thank you so much for listening uh, to this podcast to learn a little bit more about them. And uh, you can find us on Facebook and Twitter. And we invite you to subscribe to the show on iTunes, Podbean, Stitcher, or Spotify. I've been your host, Ryan luderman Savell has been your new producer. So thank you, Ryan, for being on board. And we'll be back soon with another episode of the Animal Wellness Podcast. Mm -hmm.